rather than you know invest in uh, in in the marketing aspect of it how could we kind of try to do marketing um, initiatives that don't require much money Hey, my name is Felix Tiet. I'm the host of Shopify Master, the weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you learn the challenges with creating a business that allows customers to fully customize their product, how to use a $100 marketing budget to get on big publications, and how they use their Instagram content to validate their market. Today, I'm joined by Nadim from Custom Heats. Custom Heats allows food enthusiasts to customize their own hot sauce and was started in 2017 and based out of Montreal. Welcome, Nadim. Thank you. and Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you on. So where did this idea behind DIY hot sauce come from? Um, the idea came from my brother and I. We come from a family of, you know, of hot sauce aficionados. Um, growing up, you know, we, we pretty much grew up on, on Tabasco. Um, but then like as our taste buds started to develop we were looking for like new tastes um and at my house we kind of would mix hot sauces together so we were like would be a really neat idea to have a business where you can actually customize your 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 sauce right um also a little joke that we keep saying is you know how we kind of grew up um you know with the hot sauce is our parents whenever we would actually swear or something they would actually punish us by putting hot sauce in our mouths so that's you know it came out of a little bit of a punishment this kind of like this taste for for hot sauce. Yeah, so say, yeah, I'm a big fan of hot sauce too. So you mentioned that you uh, decided to to build a business around allowing other people to customize it rather than you know you and your team just going off and creating your own flavors. What made you decide to go with the choice of allowing the customers to customize rather than just you know coming out with like you know ten different flavors or however many number? Um, well, us we were always kind of um, you know we would buy hot sauces. But we felt like a lot of the different hot sauces sell the same product, but just under a different branding. Um, we would always try to experiment with different flavors. And I, we feel like a lot of the you know, competitors uh, lacked that. It was kind of a very similar standard um, product. So we, you know, we kind of had a concept uh, early on. And uh, we were kind of like, it would be cool to kind of make a game out of it. Kind of like a, an RPG game, more or less, of, of how to... Uh, develop your your sauce it was just to kind of let the customers tell us what they want mm-hmm. how many layers of customizations do you support um so the the concept kind of works this way um the customer or the user will select a type of base so they have the choice of four bases um there's a red pepper sauce which consists of pretty much just cayenne a cayenne base um we have a chipotle sauce we have a wing sauce and we have a sriracha um and then we also have you know once the, the user selects the type of sauce they then select the type of chili peppers. So we offer the customers seven different chilies um, from milder options like Serrano, Cayenne to, you know, extreme sauces like Carolina Reaper, Ghost Pepper. Um, and then once they've selected their level of heat, they can select the ingredients. So the ingredients, like the possibilities are really endless. They have could, could pick from, you know, we're, we're talking about the fall spirit right now. There's pumpkin spice. Um, so, you know, there's a pumpkin spice for the month of October seems to be very popular. We also have other options like root beer and more traditional, you know, uh, selections like garlic, onions. Um, so I guess the, the possibility, the possibility of combinations is is like in the millions. Um, we also allow the user to upload their label, um, so they can you know get creative, you know, tell their uh, make it like as if they kind of made their own sauce. 
and we get some pretty creative ideas. You know, we have, uh, um, you know, sometimes uh, we get, uh, you know, sauces for weddings. Um, so we get a lot of, you know, orders for weddings. Um, so if any of the users or the listeners have a, a wedding coming up, you know, that's a, is a cool gift. Party noticed. favors, right? Party favors, exactly. They, you know, we have uh, companies that have reached out to us, you know, for promotional gifts. Um, so it's kind of, um, you know, we, we, we let the customers tell us what they want. And what's great about this concept as well is, is we're gathering data from customers, right? So we kind of have an advantage versus um, competitors is that we know exactly what customers are inclined to select. Um, you know, for now, I, I guess it's kind of break down 50-50. We have a lot of B2B orders and then we have a lot of B2C. Um, we've worked with a lot of companies and as I said earlier, weddings. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So because you do allow these customizations and personalization of the products, you, the pro- kind of problems that you probably face are going to be different than a, a entrepreneur store owner out there that is not allowing customizations. So if you were to to introduce customization into your business, what kind of new complications do you think people would run into? Like, What, what are some problems that are unique to a business like yours that allows customizations? Um, yeah, well, you pretty much said it. One of the uh, challenges that we faced early on, the struggles was that because we have such a, uh, you know, a product that differs from client to client, you know, you don't really have a, a standard product. You could have, you know, millions of different combinations. So it really could change from a customer to customer. Um, the challenge early on was to kind of find out who could help us produce, the, you know, under these, these constraints. Um, we approach a lot of co-packers, co-packers pretty much laughed at us and said, you know, we want big runs of the same standard product. Um, and then we kind of um, found, you know, co- uh, caterers. So caterers were willing to work with us and caterers kind of helped us um, find ways to cut down on lead times and to also cut down on, on costs. Um, so that was one of the struggles early on. We, we kind of had to honestly produce out of our kitchens early on. Um, you know, we, we had, uh, our house smelled like, like hot sauce. We had, you know, chili peppers under our, our nails. So whenever we would scratch our eyes, you know, we would get, uh, our eyes swelling. But, um, but I guess that's one of the, the challenges. But, you know, we, we looked for solutions as well due to that, that constraint. Um, we invested in R&D initiatives. We actually have a, a machine that were, that is patented, um, where, you know, you could actually customize your sauce through the machine, kind of like the Coca-Cola freestyle. Um, Pepsi Spire, um, which we're hoping to, um, you know, use in our production and also to put in restaurants and businesses. That's amazing. Definitely want to talk about this machine that's patented in a second. So when you first started the business, did you have as many customizations as you allow today or did you start off with something smaller? Um, we actually started off with a very large um, options for, for customization. Um, the bases were pretty much the same. The chili peppers kind of um, were the same, but it was more of the the ingredients. Um, we had a, a lot of them, and then we kind of went by elimination in terms of what didn't really sell. And uh, you know, we we realized that we didn't need to have this many options, and it was mostly um, you know we kind of looked at the trend of what was um, popular, and then we would just kind of narrow it down to kind of uh, try to limit um, you know the variance and skews. I got it. So basically, you wanted to over time reduce the customizations, reduce the, the 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 I guess the um, ingredients that you allow people to put in there, and just stick with what was popular. Correct. We still have over seventy ingredients, um, so the possible the options are are endless. 
Um, but you know, it's it, early on, we had like over 200 ingredients and, and, uh, we, we found that a lot of them were redundant. So we kind of narrowed it down over time. Got it. Okay. So now that you, so you decided, or you figured out that one of the biggest challenges was trying to basically scale this up. Like, how do you do this outside of your kitchen and work with vendors? And you first said that you approach co-packers. So for, to anyone out there that is not familiar with the food business, like, can you explain what a co-packer, uh, would typically do? Yeah. So a co-packer is basically, um, a company, a manufacturing company that it will produce on your behalf. Um, so a lot of big companies, you know, you'll, you think that they're the ones that produce it, but they'll go through a subcontractor and then they'll just put their label on it. Now, a lot of these co-packers have high minimum order quantities, which is a, again, it was a, a challenge for us because users can order as low, as little as one bottle. Um, but co-packers generally run under high minimum order quantities. And a co-packer, is that specific to the food and beverage industry or is that like other industries too? Um, I guess it could go to uh, other industries. Would not be, you know, if I'm not mistaken, maybe it wouldn't be considered a co-packer. But I guess you could subcontract your production as much as you want. Um, you can get, you know, an electronics company to in China to manufacture a product for you. Um, it's pretty much just the idea of outsourcing your production. Right. Okay. So you mentioned though that you didn't end up working with them because they had such high minimum order quantities, and you wanted these kind of very limited runs because there were so many customization customizations possible. So you decided then to explore caterers. Was that your next initial kind of um, attempt, or I guess solution, or did you kind of search around for other ways to solve this problem? Um, yeah. So we actually they didn't come to us right away. Um, it was actually after you know brainstorming. To try to figure out a solution to our problem, um, we kind of, you know, we brainstormed and we were like, who would want to produce such little quantities and that vary from customer to customer? Um, and we, you know, we came down to caterers. We pretty much, you know, went on, on Craigslist, Kijiji early on. We were looking for people that could produce for us. And then we came through our searches. We pretty much found out that you know, it looks like caterers would be our, our people that are that are interested in this. Um, and as our capacity grew, we started, or our demand grew, we started to acquire more and more caterers. And now we work with, you know, companies with um, big operations, but that are still, you know, their caterers. Mm. Now, now, do caterers usually work in this kind of line of business, like like the one that you have set up with them? Like, this, this is not like a normal business or service they provide, is it? No, not, not really. Um, it's, uh, you know, we, we basically, you know, nobody does this. Um, that's why, you know, we had to find unconventional solutions to our problems. We didn't really have, you know, things to, to, to compare us to. Um, so like, I can't say that our, our, the companies we work with have worked under these kinds of, of constraints. Um, but, you know, we, we kind of worked with them. Um, they helped us find solutions to, um, to uh, to our problems, and uh, we've been able to improve our operations as a result. Got it. Can you describe how like this works logistically? If you are working with a caterer to produce your 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 food product, um, yeah. So like we had an idea of how we were going to implement our production. Um, you know, early on we kind of made made a, a mix of like dried spices and different ingredients, and we kind of uh, listened to our our uh, the, the caterers to kind of see, um, you know, what their, their, uh, their issues were. You know, they were telling us early on that they were spending too much time per bottle. So we kind of listened to them to see how we can 
uh, find a solution together. Um, and we found some, you know, operational, you know, improvements. And, um, and now we've been able to, as I said earlier, narrow down the costs and, and deliver in a timely fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine like a co-packer or a, a, a vendor or factory that is operating at a, a large scale. They're probably one of their key value, value propositions is that they are able to keep the products super standardized or right? they're able to keep everything that's the same. Now, I'm assuming that you probably had to set up some additional I don't know, quality assurance or something with, with co-packers or sorry, with uh, caterers because they're probably not as used to, I guess, the stringent standards that you might require for, for like a, a, a business like yours where you're selling at scale like did you have to change or implement any new processes in their day-to-day business to make sure that the standard quality was where you wanted it um yeah well absolutely you know early on when we were going for caterers we still wanted to be compliant with regulations right um we had uh we we looked for a lot of of uh, caterers and we made ensured made sure that they were uh fda compliant um and we would audit them you know once a quarter uh, to make sure that they're, you know, the, the operations are, are clean, um, and sanitary. So, and also here in Canada, we had made sure that they're compliant with Health Canada regulations. Um, so we made sure that the, that the conditions were, you know, were, were, were good. Um, we, you know, um, had to supply them with, uh, equipment that we wanted to use that we kind of identified, the, you know, um, ways to improve on time. For example, we have, uh, blenders that kind of, will um, will heat the sauces at high temperatures. They were kind of using conventional blenders and pots and pans. So we kind of supplied them with equipment that would facilitate and improve, as I said, the lead time. Um, but um, yeah, that's uh, pretty much the only things that we had to to uh, to implement with our our caterers. Got it. So now speaking of the machine then that was patented, you guys created this yourself. Like, where did the idea behind? I guess that. How did you guys even begin to create a machine to help with production? Yeah, well, it was a bit as I said earlier. You know, um, we had the challenge of the different SKUs. Um, you know, one thing that I didn't mention is we have like over thirty three hundred visitors um, per month, and we get a you know large amount of those convert into sales. So we have to, um, you know, um, we have to kind of like improve production, improve lead times as we grow, um, and try to kind of automate our production. Um, so what that initially, that's kind of how we came up with the idea, was to kind of automate our production by doing this machine. Um, you know, we kind of saw that customization was a, was something that was trending. Um, you know, when you go to a, a fast food chain, a restaurant, now what's really popular as uh, they have Coca-Cola freestyle machines, Pepsi Spire machines, which basically allow the users to select their soft drink flavors. And we were like, it would be cool to kind of use this machine and, and put it into uh, restaurants so that people can customize their condiments and sauces as well. Um, so it, it came initially as a, as a way to automate our production. And then kind of gradually we were looking at, at um, you know, producing it to kind of give a value to the customers in uh, restaurants as well. Mm. How, how did you build this machine? Did you just do it yourself or did you hire a company to help you with it? Um, so we're working with a, a company based out of Montreal called Robotics Design. They kind of worked on the uh, Bixie, which is um, in Canada is the, um, you know, the the biking stations. I think you guys mm-hmm. might have those in New York as well. And City it's, uh, bikes, yeah, they call it. Yeah, exactly. So it's, uh, you know, they uh, they developed that and they kind of um, like the idea. So we're, we're working um, with them. Um, we have a product, prototype that is 
uh, being completed as we speak, and we'll have something ready by next month. Very cool. Now, now that's like a totally almost like a different business that you have to start to build a product like this. But what challenges did you face early on with creating a, a product, a machine from scratch? Um, it, a lot of it is that because we're developing something that doesn't really exist, um, you know, a lot of the materials required uh, to develop the prototype was kind of expensive because, you know, you have to develop a mold to produce it uh, without sounding too, you know, technical. Um, it was kind of too produce the machine without having to invest in molds early on so that we can have, you know, a, a prototype. Um, when you're, you know, developing a, a molds, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars just to develop a small piece of the equipment. Um, and, you know, that was kind of the, uh, the challenge was to kind of build it without having to invest into those different things. Um, you know, we kind of developed a prototype that we're, we're, we're going to kind of uh, tweak as we go along. So, you know, initial investment, we didn't want to be too much so that we can have that flexibility later on to kind of uh, tweak it as we go. Um, you know, and right now we've actually discussed, uh, you know, the machine with a lot of uh, big companies. We've spoken to uh, Max, I believe. I don't know if you guys have them in the U.S., but it's a big chain here in uh, Canada. Uh, in French, we have Cristal, which is, that's basically the French equivalent of it. Um, and we have, you know, chains here in Montreal, fast food chains that are interested uh, in bringing it in once we've completed it. Mm. So you mentioned that the prototyping, the machine, you did not want to put in too big of an investment at first uh, by getting these molds done. So what were you doing instead? Was it like 3D printing? Like what's the alternative to spending a lot of money on creating these these molds for for a product? Um, yeah, well, it's just that, you know, instead of we're looking at certain materials, like instead of looking for, um, you know, uh, we're, we're looking at like things like alternative to certain materials, more or less. So. Instead of going for um, plastic, we kind of started off with aluminum and things like that. Um, it was just to kind of swap certain materials early on. And then um, once we have purchase orders for the machines, um, then we can kind of invest into developing more um, cost-effective uh, materials. You know, like I guess um, aluminum may be cheaper initially, but once you have the mold completed for mass production, it's cheaper to go different routes. Mm-hmm, I got it. Okay, so what is the patenting process like for for something like this? Um, well, it's uh, you know to be honest, it was mostly our our engineer that kind of uh, helped us out with it. We've approached a company, um, and then they kind of patent um, the, the 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 operations of or the the functionality of the machine. Got it. Okay, so when you when you were creating this product, you mentioned that you already have some restaurants that are interested in it. How did you market or present this idea to them, and how do you plan on marketing this product to restaurants in the future? Um, yeah, like uh, with now that a lot of restaurants are using foot traffic, um, we think that it's an added value to these restaurants, right? Um, now that Uber Eats um, are is becoming really popular, you know, people are ordering and they're going less into restaurants. Um, which is a good and a bad thing, depending on what type of business model you have. But, um, for companies that want foot traffic, um, you know, we pitch it as more of a, an added value for them, you know, something that is going to interest customers to kind of come in, uh, rather than order because they have that, you know, that, that added value. Mm-hmm. And do you have a price point in mind for a machine like this? Um, well, initially we're, what we're thinking is not to, well, we can potentially sell it, but we're looking more at a, at a leasing kind of business model. So mm-hmm. we would lease the machine um, and we would also um, supply the, the flavors, the types of sauces, all the ingredients that are required to run the machine. We would also take care of the maintenance. 
So it would be, um, you know, wouldn't sell outright. We kind of like to um, lease it. Got it. Okay, makes sense. So you mentioned that when you were or when you were uh, allowing people to come on and customize their product, you said that one of the key benefits that you have over your competitors is that you're able to now gather data on your customers to know exactly what they want. So tell us more about this. Like, how have you used? How have you? How have you been able to use this this data? Um, yeah. So pretty much as you said, like because of all the data we're gathering. Um, we also have a, an option on our website, which is the pre-made sauces or, you know, when we're doing um, our business to business, we, you know, we usually sell a standard sauce, which we'll relabel. Um, what's, what we're doing is, um, we've gathered the data basically of the selections and we've kind of developed sauces based on what people want. Um, you know, one of our popular things is a, a Caribbean ghost pepper sauce, which is basically a ghost pepper sauce with coconut ingredients. Uh, coconut milk and um you know we've we've been able to develop standard products which would allow us to also reduce our costs um so we've gathered the data also what we're doing is um you know we can also have um we're in negotiations with uh restaurant chains in canada or not restaurant chains sorry grocery chains um to kind of hold our sauces in their their groceries and these are all sauces that we've developed based off of the data um, that we've gathered, you know, believe it or not, one of the popular ingredients that people tend to select is root beer. Um, so we develop sauces based off of those selections. You know what I said earlier? Um, people can still customize like the, 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 the businesses. They can still customize their sauces. Um, but we also have that option of, um, of, um, having them, those pre-made sauces based off of what sells. Yeah, I can see that when you approach these these supermarkets, these grocery stores, and you bring these pre-made sauces, do you use that data and say like, hey, this is stuff that people are already directly asking for? And does that help your pitch into these grocery stores? Absolutely. You know, one of the, uh, as I said, one of the benefits that we have, one of our competitive advantages versus our competitors is that our competitors kind of have a standard product and haven't necessarily evolved into other types of sauces they've kind of kept it very standard um you know other companies do have different uh, sauces but they haven't really gone into you know um offering customers what they want um we when we go to the groceries we tell them look this is the data we've gathered this is what people want and this is the sauce that we we have to kind of um meet that demand Mm-hmm. So if anyone out there it maybe doesn't sell a customized product, but they are selling a food or beverage-based product, when you approach a grocery store, what do you find that they care most about? Um, well, what they, they, they want is, well, at the end of the day, they want to sell, right? Um, when they kind of want to um, bring in our sauces, they want to make sure that it, there's going to be, a, a, you know, consistent sales. Um, and, you know, we've been able to show them that we're, uh, a different type of company um, that is kind of, you know, we at the end of the day, we say that we're a food company, but we feel like that we're a technology company as well in the sense that we're, we have all that data. Um, so then when we present to them the numbers, the traction we're getting, you know, the, the, the viral attention that we've had through, through online medias, it kind of, you know, reassures them that this is maybe something that is kind of trending upwards. Um, but it, at the end of the day is, is, you know, we, we, we have all this information that we present to them and, it's something that is, uh, you know, puts us uh, in our own kind of separate lane compared to other companies. 
Mm-hmm. Now, when you want to pitch to a grocery store, who who exactly? Like, what's the role or the title of the person that you need to get into a meeting with? Um, there's uh, category managers that we kind of uh, work with. Um, so we have, uh, you know, one that we work with uh, with the Sobies, um, but pretty much uh, category managers that we've we've kind of approached um, over time. And what's what's been the best way for you to get in touch or network with a a category manager? Um, to be honest, uh, you know, what I, I hadn't mentioned this earlier, but we actually went on uh, Dragon's Den, which is the equivalent of Shark Tank mm-hmm. in uh, in Canada. Um, we we kind of we pitched. We got multiple offers. We actually passed on TV back in February, and we actually, you know, um, had people that uh, we we know we had contacts after Dragons then of, um, of you know through the cohort that we uh, that we went to when we accepted the offer of one of the dragons. Um, we actually developed the uh, the um, you know we we developed the relations with the category manager. But other than that, we've kind of just reached out on people on LinkedIn. Um, you know, we look on LinkedIn for category managers from different chains. And that's how we kind of approach them. We just slide into their DMs and and that's how it is. Yeah. So basically, publicity is the key to opening the doors for a lot of these relationships. Like, you know, being on Dragon's Den, I'm sure a lot of these category managers or people that knew them or other people that might be above them at these companies saw you and were interested in in taking these meetings. And when you approached them, or maybe they reached out to you directly. And you mentioned to to us that you started with a marketing budget of just a hundred bucks and you've been able to get on places like Rachel Ray's Everyday Magazine, Now This, Time Out, Urban Daddy, and then of course Dragon's Den. And then all the other benefits that came out with, from that publicity. So can you, you mentioned that you felt like you did this through very calculated steps that can be repeated. So walk us through that. What were the calculated steps to have a $100 budget, you know, basically nothing, and get, on, get onto all these publications? Um, you know, we were kind of fortunate in the early on in the sense that we, before we even had a website, we had an Instagram account explaining our concepts. Um, early on, we were reached out by, by Rachel Ray Magazine. And she wrote an article about us. And it was right around the time of uh, November, so right before Christmas. And that kind of gave us a lot of traction. You know, a lot of people wanted to, um, you know, order it as a gift for one of their friends or relatives. Um, and then after that, it kind of like, uh, it was like a snowball effect somewhat. Uh, we kind of had a um, timeout, Urban Daddy that wrote not far after that. Um, and then we were like, okay, we want to build on that. And rather than, you know, invest in, uh, in, in the marketing aspect of it, how could we kind of try to do marketing um, initiatives that don't require much money? So we then after that, we kind of, uh, we went on Dragon's Den, which initially wasn't even something that we um, we thought we would be getting offers. It was just to kind of have that visibility. Um, so we went on Dragon's Den. It was kind of, you know, the concept alone was kind of viral. So it was something that, uh, you know, got people talking and things like that. Um, we also thought of, of, we approached people from now this food. We told them, look, we were on dragons then. Um, would you guys be interested in doing a video about us? You know, and they look for content. They look for new ideas. So they were kind of interested in, in doing a video about us. Um, and then we kind of looking at ways where we can have people talking. So we developed a hundred dollar sauce, um, which we put, uh, you know, gold flakes, truffles. Um, and you know, that also gave us a little bit of that viral visibility. It's one of the, actually the most looked at items on our website. Um, so we were kind of early on just looking at three ways to get people talking. Um, we did invest in Facebook and Instagram, social media and things like that. But early on, it was more to look at how we can put our names out there without putting too much investment. 
Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this hundred dollars sauce, I feel like there's these products that you can you can create for your your store, your brand that are just strictly for getting attention, and then products that you actually intend to sell. Was that one 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 of the goals for this hundred dollars sauce? I'm sure that you weren't expecting too many people to buy this, but it was to pull potential customers of your other products in in, in through the door. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, we were you know um, there was a, a very good book that I had read a, a while back called Contagious. Um, and that's pretty much what it talks about. It talks about how you can get um, your your product viral. Um, so if anybody, uh, you know, listening is is looking at ways to to get their product to sell, you know, viral, get it viral, um, that's a really good book. And then one of the, the examples in the book, they said, you know, they had a, a restaurant that sold a $100 uh, Philly cheesesteak out of Philadelphia and that it got a lot of people... Um, got a lot of people to get into the store, not necessarily to buy it, but just out of curiosity to see what made it a hundred dollar cheesesteak. So we were kind of like, that That was pretty interesting that they got traffic just because of an item. And I'm sure they didn't necessarily sell too many, but it was kind of something that got people talking that had, you know, newspaper writing about them. So we are like, wouldn't it be cool to kind of do a hundred dollar sauce? Um, and I don't think, I think we might be actually the most expensive hot sauce in the world. Um, not excluding, you know, those, very scarce ones, those artisanal ones, but you know, one of the most expensive hot sauces. And uh, it actually brought a lot of traffic. Um, and you know, we, we didn't sell too many, as you said, we've sold only a few of people that are curious, but it got people definitely talking. Also, we were, um, you know, we were um, looking at ways to, um, to get people talking. And another way was to use your hot sauce as a business card. Um, we kind of, you know, would go to trade shows and instead of having a business card, we would just show up with a hot sauce bottle with our names on it. And it got people like really, you know, it, it kind of people gave people a laugh that it was something that was really cool. So, you know, we, we kind of, we told people to businesses, you know, do something like this. It'll get people, people talking. Um, so to the listeners, if you want to make a, if you want to make an impression, there's a, you know, a hot sauce business card is definitely one of them. <laughs> Come see us. <laughs> yeah. So, so where are these ideas? These these viral products or viral campaigns? Where where do they come from? How do they? Where do they, who who do they come from? Like, is there a process that you try to work through to come up with new ideas? Um. Yeah. Well, a lot of it comes from us, like just brainstorming. Um. You know, we read a lot of books on marketing as well. Uh, we look at other industries and how we can implement it to the hot sauce industry. So, and then also we. We, we do a lot of prototyping, you know, we, we come through ideas, we do a lot of them and then we just, you know, the ones that work, we stick with them. And then the ones that don't work, we just kind of, we kind of, uh, uh, let them go, but it's a lot of trial and error and that's how we kind of stick with what works. I like that, that you look outside of your industry, because if you look for the best ideas from other industries, they are proven to work on humans, right? On potential customers, but they've never probably been exposed to your actual customers. So now you have a proven formula, a proven uh, concept that is going to be introduced to potentially people that have never you know, seen it before. So it's basically a, a you know, the best of both worlds, a brand new audience and a, a concept that has already worked. So when you, when you come up with these ideas, like have they all been successful? Like what have you guys tried that has failed? You know, we, we kind of, um, we did work with some, some companies. We had a, a, a marketing company out of Montreal, um, that kind of, you know, we, we kind of wanted to outsource our marketing that, that didn't work too well because they were kind of, um, you know, doing the standard way of doing 
of, of marketing us as a hot sauce company. Um, we were kind of looking for something different. Um, we were kind of looking at the ways, you know, to kind of do something kind of, uh, you know, we were kind of unconventional at the same time. Like, as I said earlier, we kind of looked at ourselves a little bit as a technology and a food company, um, you know, to find a marketing company that has our vision um, for social media and things like that was what didn't always work out. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was one example of them. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think is key now when you look back on the the patterns of of, of products or ideas that have gone viral for you? What do you think is the key to to getting right to to at least stack the odds in your favor for a product or an idea, a campaign to go viral? Um, well, it's at the end of the day, it's kind of um, people don't want to necessarily they don't want you necessarily to sell something, right? Um, it, at the end of the day, you kind of have to give some sort of content. Um, you know, if you're, you don't want it to look kind of like an infomercial. So we kind of looked at what made us unique, what kind of had people talking about us. And then we kind of tried to build things around that. Um, you know, like, um, again, like I was saying earlier in that book, it was, you know, they, they initially they were talking about how they had a, uh, you know, Vitamix had that challenge where they had a $400 blender and they were like, how do we kind of sell people a $400 blender like how could we tell them that this is a ne- something that they would want and they started to make a YouTube channel where they were kind of like um, will it blend they were kind of like blending things to see if it would so at the end of the day it's, it's not necessarily to try to sell something people have the tendency of wanting to push through sales it's actually looking at ways where you can give content um, so we kind of always looked at that route in terms of how could we give something that people will, will grab people's attention hey Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Mm, makes sense. Okay, I want to go back to something you said earlier, which was that you guys had Instagram before a website even. What made you start there? Why did you decide to start with the Instagram rather than a website first? Um, well, it was early on we had the, the, the concept, um, but we didn't, you know, we, we wanted to have that market validation early on. Um, we didn't want to develop a website for something that people don't necessarily want, right? We it was a new concept, wasn't something that was necessarily tested. It could have been pretty stupid, you know what I mean? People would have been like, "Oh, like what is this? I don't want to have to, you know, customize my sauce." My sauce. But we wanted to start an Instagram account to see if there would be some sort of attention behind it, right? So we were kind of um, like, "Okay, let's just start an Instagram account talking about customization of hot sauce," and that's when we kind of got approached by Rachel Ray right after. Um, so then that kind of gave us that market validation. Um, it was just to kind of reduce the risk, it was to kind of test our product before we actually launched. Mm, so tell us about the content early on then. Like this is a profile that you basically started from scratch or like did you have something going on before on here? Um, no, it was uh, one Instagram page that we started from scratch. Yep. Mm-hmm. So what kind of content were you were you putting out there to to um, validate if there was a market for like were you posting like behind the scenes photos like videos stories like what what were you what kind of content what, I guess what was like, what was the content strategy early on to validate if there was a market? Yeah, so we pretty much um, had uh, these little gifts that we would post uh, pretty much and like artwork that would say like look have you ever wanted to try a root beer hot sauce and then we would talk about how customize your sauce today. So it was kind of like taking the most unique ingredients that people would be like, like, I want to try this. This is kind of different and kind of making uh, pictures around that. And we would tag a lot of, um, you know, influencers or, or, uh, or, um, 
you know, use certain hashtags to get people to look at those images and, and grab people's attentions. Um, so early on, it was a lot of gifts and also pictures of like weird mixes that we kind of posted on our Instagram. Um, we also had, you know, um, you know, we used a lot of, uh, of videos, um, on stories of basically saying, you know, um, testing out Carolina Reapers and things like that. Because as you know, with hot ones and things like that, people are looking for creative ways to kind of, of test themselves. So we posted a lot of, you know, little videos of, of uh, making, consuming, you know, Carolina Reaper sauces and things like that and make polls, you know, to get people engaged. So it was kind of, um, you know, that's how we kind of built a little bit of a following and then which led to us getting um, publications writing about us. Mm-hmm. Now, how slowly or quickly was the following building? Um, it was, uh, it was actually pretty fast early on. We were kind of fortunate in that, in that regard. Um, as I said, it was kind of right around the time of Christmas and we didn't want to necessarily let it die down. So we're kind of, you know, right after that, Urban Daddy, right after that timeout. Uh, um, then we were like, okay, we have to do something to kind of keep it going up. Um, we're like, okay, we went on Dragons then. So it was kind of, um, we were fortunate to have something early on and right around the time of Christmas. And then after that, you know, we just built off of the visibility that we had from the previous, um, the previous uh, media publications. Mm. How, remember how big your following was or how big, how long you you were at it before a big publication like you know, Rachel Ray approached you? Um, it wasn't that much initially. It was maybe, uh, you know, like 600 followers. Um, and, uh, you know, once we had Rachel Ray, um, it wasn't necessarily through our Instagram because a lot of, I guess, the, the followers of Rachel Ray still use, you know, print. Um, so a lot of them were kind of like just through the, the magazines and things like that. Um, but, um, yeah, it was, uh, wasn't too much early on. Yeah, I mean, 600 followers and uh, how, how long were you at this? Because it seems like you were, it was pretty early on in, I guess, your, the, the company or uh, in your online presence before all these publications picked you up. So I was wondering like, what was it do you think about your social media approach that allowed you to get picked up so quickly? Um, it's, you know, we were, we started the Instagram account in, in October, Rachel Ray wrote about us in November. Um, it was, it was more, mostly, I would tend to say it was because of the concept, um, of, uh, the customization of the, of the sauce, which was part of our strategy. You know what I mean? It was kind of, we, we, we didn't have, you know, an infinite amount of dollars, a lot of money to kind of invest in marketing, especially something that is so new. Um, she kind of allowed us to educate the public about us, um, without us having to, you know, invest too much into into explaining that mm-hmm. and were you selling uh via instagram at this time because i imagine you're posting all of these hot sauce you know concoctions that you're putting together and you were actively talking about uh products that you wanted to sell i'm sure people were reaching out or commenting or sending dms saying hey where can i buy this like what was what was your strategy to handle these kind of requests um you know early on we had uh we we did have on our on our Instagram that we were in the process of developing a website. We had a, a launch date, um, so we were you know we we um, we had people that were kind of waiting for that launch date. We did get approached by people while we were still uh, only with an Instagram account. We did get a couple of orders and a business to business order as well, uh, which we kind of had to do um, unconventionally, kind of aside. We we had an Excel spreadsheet of of what we had and we would send it over to them. And then that's how they placed orders. But early on, we kind of put a, you know, um, 
uh, a launch, you know, we're keeping people posted for a launch date um, while we were, you know, validating our, our product. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were getting picked up by these publications and your product was starting to go viral, you mentioned that you were able to leverage this, this viral product that got you media coverage by using Facebook retargeting to capitalize on all of this virality. Uh, tell us more about this. Like, how did you, how how did you use Facebook retargeting in while when your your product or your business your brand started to go viral? Pretty much, what we did for the marketing is we had a installed a Facebook pixel. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, you're, it's still saving somewhat the, uh, the user's information. Um, and then we would retarget based off of that. Um, so we would actually use promo codes that we would, you know, through the retargeting, we would offer, um, the customers, uh, a promo code. And then we would kind of review, um, how successful the retargeting was based off that, that, uh, promo code. I got it. So, so you were like doing, building like lookalike audiences and all that to, to based off of the, 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 the traffic that was coming to your site that was basically free traffic because it was coming from media coverage? Yeah. And we also uh, used like the Privy pop-up uh, app, which is offered through Shopify um, and offered uh, a, another kind of promo code on that to get people to place their first order. And, and then they would get a newsletter after that once they registered their email. So that's one thing. It was the pop-up, gave a promo code um, once you enter your email. And we can kind of retarget uh, through newsletters like that. Right. So basically your goal was to capture this free traffic that was coming from media coverage, whether that be through uh, retargeting them on Facebook or by capturing their emails and then marketing them that way. Is this still a strategy that you use today? Yes, of course. Um, we haven't really changed that uh, aspect of our marketing. Um, we still follow the same strategy. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned to me uh, in the forum, in a pre-interview forum, which was that there is a difference between entrepreneur and someone that's self-employed. Can you say more about this? About how um, the entrepreneur is different? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I guess when you're an entrepreneur, you know, it's not to sound too cliche, you're not really doing that that nine to five, right? Um, you'll have to work long hours um, and you kind of have to um, find solutions your, yourself, right? You can't necessarily... Um, you know, delegate it to somebody else or type thing. You can, but it's uh, it's kind of like you kind of have to find a solution, and you don't always have the answers. Um, so you have to be willing to kind of um, work those long hours and to you know test things out and not to be scared to kind of try new ideas. Especially you know with our concept, um, you know we didn't have any examples to to go by, so we kind of um, you know had to kind of be fearless somewhat and to try just try different things out. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that this business really took off right around the holiday shopping season when you first started in 2017. Uh, what, what what kind of preparations are you doing today to take advantage of that holiday shopping season again this this year? Um, so you know we we basically um, will um, make sure that customers are aware of you know the the the, the five to ten business day lead time. Um, we kind of uh, you know we get a lot of customers that want to surprise me which is one of the features on our website um, where we kind of produce based off, you know, kind of something at random based off previous customer orders. So we kind of build up inventory on certain items like that, try to produce ahead of time. Um, you know, we hold a little bit more inventory of our pre-made sauces to kind of limit um, on, on lead times. Um, so pretty much that's what we kind of do when we prepare for um, the holiday seasons. 
Mm-hmm. Now, when you are looking for brand new customers, how do you get these customers to try a product, a food-based product, without tasting it ahead of time? Especially since these are you know unique combinations that they probably have never had before. Um, yeah, so pretty much that's that's another challenge that we had. Um, is you know we kind of um, offer the customer, um, you know they they reach out to us a lot. They'll ask us, um, oh, what what is, is this a good combination? Or sometimes they'll write us little comments. Um, and we're not afraid to reach out in case there's something that we think is not necessarily compatible, but we do guarantee our customers that they'll have a great tasting sauce at the end of the day. Um, you know, so, um, we're, we're, we make sure that we offer a product that is consumable at the end of the day, even though we have certain ingredients that sound a little crazy. And if we ever have a concern, we, we kind of have a communication with our, with our clients. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Privy was one of the apps that you use for the, for the pop-ups. What other apps do you use to run the business? Um, the apps that we use, so we do use a uh, crisp, which is our, um, our messaging, uh, tool through our website. That's like a chat, like a live chat. Correct. Yeah. So we have, uh, that, the chat box on our website, which, um, you know, we'll message customers that are, that go on our website. We'll be like, do you need any help with something? Um, you know, we can see that if they have something in their checkbox, if they're taking a little bit of time, we, you know, we have these automated messages that we send out. So we use that for the messaging tool. Um, we have Privy, as I said, the pop-up. Um, we have a conversion tool for, you know, U.S. to Canadian dollars that we've installed on, on uh, our Shopify, and we have uh, the newsletter app, which, uh, which is Privy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, on Crisp, the app that you use for live chat, what kind of questions typically come in through through there? Um, well, a lot of them is, you know, people will ask if this is a good mix. They'll ask, uh, they'll ask us to mm-hmm. kind of. Um, you know, when they would be getting their order, if they placed their order today, um, they ask us, you know, if we can assist them with designing their label. Sometimes customers, they have, um, you know, an idea of, a, of, a, of an image. They have an image, but they don't necessarily uh, have a, a, an actual label design. So we're kind of, you know, we discuss certain things with our clients and we kind of, you know, develop certain the, the labels for them. So a lot of them relate to, you know, um, you know, to the labeling and the uh, development of the sauce to make sure that they're making mixes. But a lot of them are, you know, sometimes they'll let us, they'll trust us. They'll be like, oh, this is what I want in it. Can you guys make something that is pretty good with this ingredient? And then we'll kind of, um, we'll, we'll tell them, you know, what we think is kind of good, um, a good combination with their sauce. At the end of the day, we kind of, you know, we, we joke around. We kind of feel like we're, we're pepper consultants, um, you know, and then we kind of consult our, our customers on ways they can, develop a great tasting sauce. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier, you said that there was how many visitors per month that was coming to your site? Um, over 3,300. Got it. Have you made any changes recently to the site to improve things like conversion rate? Um, yeah. So we have, um, initially we were on Magento and we actually, uh, we, we switched to Shopify. It wasn't too great. Um, you know, it was limited in terms of apps. It wasn't, our website wasn't as great as it was like we feel it is today. Um, so we actually, you know, we switched from Magento to Shopify, which was a major change. Um, aside from that, we had, um, you know, we added, um, you know, the different levels of uh, heat on the chili peppers, for example, on our website, because they had people that were wondering what the heat levels are. So whenever we had, you know, questions that were asked to us on the chat box, we tried to see if there was ways we could implement it on our website so that they can avoid to have to message us. Um, you know, some people don't necessarily have the patience to kind of 
you know, message. So we were kind of willing to put the information right off the bat. Uh, what else we added is we have a measuring tool. Um, seeing as though the ingredients are on a scale of one to 10, we actually put a chart saying, you know, one would be considered a little, one to, to four, for example. Um, and then five would be like a medium. And then from five to 10 or six to 10, it would be a lot. So we kind of put tools in place to kind of help um, our clients to 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 know, you know, what amount of ingredients they're putting. Um, we're also thinking of adding a feature on our website, which says, you know, um, it would be kind of a tool to say um, if it's the sauce will be sweet, um, if it will be salty and things like that, based off of the quantity of ingredients they're putting. So this is something that we're looking to add to our website um, in the short term. And these all came from basically just questions that people were messaging you through like email or live chat. Correct. Yeah. So we noticed that a lot of the question, a lot of the same questions were being asked. So we were looking, you know, how we can save customers from having to message us to make the experience, you know, to have a good customer service that we were giving to our clients so that they could have all the tools necessary to kind of, um, you know, to, 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 to place their order. Um, at the end of the day, it was ways to convert. You know what I mean? We looked at our conversion. Like, how could we convert? Oh, these are the questions that keep coming up. Will this help with conversion? And that's how we kind of developed um, certain tools on our website. Yeah, I think that's important that, that if people are asking the same question over and over again, it's much better than to just respond to each comment or each question with the answer. It's better to put it on your site. But if you've gone a little bit beyond where I typically see where, you know, sometimes people will have like an FAQ page or something. What you've done is that you built the the, the answers to their questions into parts of your site that where people would ask that question, right? And it's not like you don't want them to have to dig for information. Like, like I'm on the product page now and then the, the heat stuff and the, you know, the mouse stuff is right here on the product page. So it's very clear where I might, you know, be questioning, might have a question. I, the answer is right in front of my face when I would have that question. So I think it's important that you, that what you guys have done is that you built the, the answers into the, again, the places where people might, ask a question to begin with exactly you know at the end of the day me personally i don't like to go into faqs and things like that um i kind of you know we i want to be able to you know have all the information that is needed right off the bat i want to be on a website i don't want to spend too much time if i want to order something i want to be able to have all the information and place my order uh you know and and that's it um this way you've kind of as you said you integrated your faq um straight on your website so they have all the information needed awesome so customheats.com is the website i'll leave you this last question what, what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge that you guys will face over the next year um the biggest challenge is just to continue scaling um you know i said that we have over 3300 um visitors on our website it's climbing on a monthly basis um really our our um, our objective is to scale um, and to kind of reduce the lead times as we scale. So I guess that's one of the challenges is to continue um, to develop a highly customizable product and offer this to, you know, to millions of people, um, you know, without them having to, um, to, to, to wait too, too long and to keep offering a fresh product and our, you know, an artisanal product that somebody wants to keep to have that identity of offering, you know, a, a good sauce in a timely fashion based off of the tastes of the user. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Nadim. Thank you, uh, Felix. Uh, thanks for, for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.